Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. The book of Genesis, chapter 17. As we continue looking together at the life of Abraham. Genesis, chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 1. Genesis 17 and verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. There are two truths that I want to occupy our time together this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first one. The two truths are this. Number one, that God is omnipotent. Everybody say omnipotent. And second, that God requires faith from His people. So number one, let's start with this truth that God is omnipotent. This word omnipotent is made up of two parts. Omni, which means all, and potent, which means strength or power. So the word omnipotence refers to having all strength, all power, unlimited might. None of us in this room is omnipotent. We all have limits to what we can do, some more than others, but we all have our limits. I can pick up this Bible. I cannot pick up that piano. I can walk down these stairs. I cannot fly across the room. I am limited. But God's ability, what He is able to, of, what He is capable of doing, is not limited in any way. In the very first verse of our passage, God comes to elderly Abram and says, "I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty." Hear that? Almighty. In chapter 16, Abram and his barren wife, Sarai, were getting old. Abram was in his mid-80s. If they were going to have a son, action had to be taken immediately. Yes, God had promised that in His own way, in His own time, a son would be given to them. But to Abram and to Sarai, it appeared that time was running out. Having a son was about to become an impossibility. They had not yet learned that nothing is impossible with God. So they came up with their own wicked scheme. They tried to obtain a son for themselves by their own power, by having Abram take Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar, and bear a son through her. As we saw the last couple of weeks, the result of Abram and Sarai trying to do things their own way was a lot of pain and a lot of heartache and a lot of suffering. When we come to chapter 17, 13 years have passed. Abram is now 99 years old. Sarai is not only still barren, but now she's 90 years old. A son has now become impossible for them. Yes, God promised them a son, but it doesn't matter. It's too late. They're far too old. A son is now a biological impossibility. And yet God comes to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Do you remember the promises that God made to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12? These promises that we've been taking note of all throughout this study. 
God now decisively for the last time with such fullness in Abraham's life as revealed to us in the scriptures states these great promises that he will accomplish by the power of his own might. Abram cannot make any of these things come true. God must do these things. If you'll remember two of the great promises that God made to Abram were these. Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abram, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you remember how God is keeping that promise? In the Old Testament, these promises were fulfilled, but not really. (laughs) They They were only partially fulfilled, kind of fulfilled, fulfilled in shadow. Did God make a great nation from Abram? Yes. Israel, the nation of Israel comes from Abram. Was ancient Israel really a great nation? Well, kind of. Didn't compare to the Assyrians wasn't as great as the Babylonians, certainly had nothing compared to the Romans, but it was, a, it was a decent nation. But that was not the ultimate fulfillment, was it? That was not what was ultimately being promised. We're told in Galatians and elsewhere in the New Testament that when God made promises to Abram and to Abram's seed, the seed in reference there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every promise that God made to Abram would be fulfilled in Christ. So when God makes a promise to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation from you, that is fulfilled in Christ who is today building a kingdom, a nation, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Jesus is building this kingdom promise to Abram even now. When he's done with his building work, this world will end. It is the number one thing happening in the world today. Jesus building, creating this kingdom, this great nation that God promised to Abraham. And when he's finished, he will return and the wicked will be cast into judgment And his kingdom will go to live on a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever. This kingdom, this nation that God has promised is truly glorious. It is a perfect nation. After all, its architect is God himself. It is an eternal, it is an undefeatable nation. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The king of this nation is Jesus himself. Has there ever been such a good king? Every citizen in this kingdom has had their sins forgiven, washed away by the blood of Christ. This is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of holiness, and a kingdom of happiness in eternity. There will be no sickness, sorrow, pain, or death in this kingdom. It truly is the greatest nation the world has ever known. And when it is finished, it will be paradise itself. Well, that's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. But what about the promise that through Abram all the families of the earth would be blessed? Well, in the Old Testament, does that really come true at all? 
Can we say in the Old Testament, all the families of the earth are blessed because of Abram? That's really a stretch. You can find the occasional Gentile who comes to believe on God through Israel. Think of someone like Rahab. But by the time you get to Romans 2, Paul says that Israel served more to make people blaspheme God rather than worship God. So how is it fulfilled that through Abram all the families of the earth will be blessed? Well, it's fulfilled through Jesus Christ building His kingdom. For how is Jesus building His church? How is this great kingdom of God coming together? By Jesus raising up missionaries, by Jesus raising up church planters, and sending them into the uttermost parts of the earth, preaching the gospel, people are believing, and people are saved from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. This is the glorious fulfillment of God's promise to Aaron. I remind you of all that because here in Genesis 17, specifically verses 4, 5, and 6, this is what God is talking about. But He says it a little differently than we've seen it so far. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Behold. Behold always means, Look! Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So, Abram, not just one nation is going to come from you. A multitude of nations are going to come from you, Abram. Remember the promise to this point, the promise that we've been working with in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 and Genesis 14 and Genesis 15, Genesis 16 has been this promise. Abram, I will make of you all nation. Now suddenly it's, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So which is it? (laughs) What is the promise here, God? Well, I bet you know the answer. It's both. Yes, if we look to the Old Testament, we see that Abram was both the the father of a kind of great nation, Israel. He was also the father of other nations through Hagar. He had Ishmael. Ishmael became the father of the Ishmaelites. She's only mentioned briefly, but Abram did take another concubine wife named Keturah. He had several sons through her, and we presume that from them came other peoples. And so, yes, biologically speaking, Abram did become the father of a multitude of nations, as well as the one great nation. But all of that's not the real fulfillment. The real fulfillment is in Jesus Christ and His building of the church. The Lord Jesus is building a great nation. And what do we find in the New Testament? This nation, this great nation that Jesus is building, is a nation of nations. It is a kingdom which has within its scope a multitude of kingdoms. As we worship here this morning, we have brothers and sisters who are worshiping this day as well. In Asia, and in Africa, and in Europe, and in South America, and in Australia... You and I as Christians are a part of something spectacular that the Lord Jesus is doing. 
building up a nation of nations, a nation made up of people from every people group in the world. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. As a sign of how absolutely certain these things are, God changes Abram's name. From this time forward, Abram is Abraham, which means father of a multitude. In fact, God's promise is so certain. His will regarding Abraham is so fixed and unchangeable that God speaks here in the past tense. Did you see that? He says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's as if God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, in my eternal will, fixed before the foundations of the earth, it has already been decided. You are the father of a multitude of nations. Though you are 99 and your wife Sarah has yet to bear a son. This is who you are, and I will make it so. Just in case Abraham isn't getting the picture, God reiterates himself. Verse 6. See verse 6? says it again. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Notice those words, will, shall. God is not waiting on anybody's permission Nor is he speaking of what he might do. These things are absolutely certain. What God has chosen to do, he will do. They shall come to pass. This is what it means to be God Almighty. God mentions that kings are going to come from Abraham. In an earthly sense, this was true. Kings of Israel, leaders of the Ishmaelites, kings of Edom, these would all come from Abraham. But like every other promise, it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ, the King of kings, and in the kingdom He's creating in which every citizen is a king. As it was in the beginning when God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, so it will be in the end when Jesus gives His people dominion over the world. What about those other two promises that we've been following? What about the promise that God made to Abram in Genesis 12 that He would be with him, that He would be God to His people? Look at verse 7. Verse 7. And I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Okay, partially fulfilled in the Old Testament. God was with Israel, though kind of. He was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go in there and only once a year. And if he didn't do it exactly right, he would die. But God was with them. But how true does this become in the New Testament? Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus, has established a kingdom in which God is with each and every individual member of it in a special way. He dwells in them. He dwells with them. He will never leave them. He will not forsake them. Note the word eternal in verse 7. This is an eternal promise. 
God isn't with His people for a while. He's with them forever. And then there's the last promise that we've been following all this time. The promise that God would give a land to His people where they would dwell. And there it is again in verse 8. Verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there it is, all the central promises of God to Abram, now restated to Abraham at 99 years old when he is completely incapable of doing anything to have any of them. The promise of the land... In the Old Testament, Israel does get the promised land, but they never possess all of it. And they certainly don't possess it everlastingly. They're driven out of it. But we learn in the New Testament that this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It all points to Christ. That Christ is building His church, His kingdom, and when He's done, He will bring them into a promised land. One day, all of the strife in Palestine and the Gaza Strip will come to an end. This world will be made new, and the people of God will dwell on a new earth forever and ever. This morning, the central truth that I see in God restating all of these promises to Abraham is this. Abraham, I will do this. You won't. I will. God is declaring to Abraham that he is God Almighty. He will bring these things to pass. Abraham had foolishly, in just the last chapter, tried to make these things happen in his own strength, in his own way, in his own power. Now he can do nothing, and God says, Good, look to me and believe, and I will do all these things for you. How impossible are these promises that God is making? So impossible that Abraham responds by laughing at God. Can I just tell you that that's never a good idea? To laugh at God? We come down to verse 15. God repeats the promise again of a son and He changes Sarai's name. Her name will now be, will now mean, will now be Sarah, which means princess emphasizing the royalty that will come from her. Her original name, Sarai, meant princess. But God puts His own little twist on it, renames her, changes the name a bit as if to say, now through me you are truly a princess. Royalty will come from you. And how does Abraham respond? We are told that he fell on his face and laughed. That's how unbelievable these promises were. More than that, he cries out to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It's as if all hope of having a son through Sarah is gone. Abraham is here not believing what God has just said. He seems to think that his only hope, his slim chance of a hope of having all these things that God has promised is for God to accept Ishmael and to work through him and to cause Ishmael to walk before him. And yet God responds very clearly to this. No. See it? No. 
Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. So one of the clearest teachings of this chapter is that our God is a God of the impossible. Whereas Abraham and Sarah have no strength whatsoever to make these things come true, God has all strength. And church, so it is with us and the promises of salvation. We have no strength whatsoever, no ability whatsoever to accomplish the perfection and the holiness required for us to be right before Almighty God and to go to heaven. We have no ability to make that happen. If salvation is dependent on our strength, our works, our ability, we have no hope. But if salvation all depends on what God can do, well, then we have hope. For He is God Almighty. Dear friends, the Bible gives us glorious promises. The promise of your sins being wiped away and forgiven. The promise of the Holy Spirit making you a person of love, joy, and peace. The promise of heaven. That's a big one. The the promise of having God guide you through this life by His Word. The promise of freedom from anxiety and worry. The the promise of purpose in your life. The promise of courage and, and boldness. All of these promises are laid out. What must we do? What must we do to have all these promises? All we have to do is come to the same place that Abraham and Sarah are now at in Genesis 17. We must come to the place of realizing we can't make these things happen on our own. We must come to the place of helplessness, the place of brokenness, the place where we stop saying, I'm going to clean myself up and then go to God. I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to straighten out these problems I have. I'm going to change my attitude. And when I've got myself all cleaned up and made myself holy, I'm going to go before God. It can't happen. And you cannot have salvation and nor any of the promises that God has made to you until you come to the place of falling on your face and saying, God, you are my only hope. If you are willing to look to the God for whom all things are possible and to receive what He freely gives you, that is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to be a Christian. It's also what it means to be a child of Abraham. What can we say about the power of God? It's so great it makes all the power of all humanity put together appear as nothing. There is no one thing, I'm sorry, there's no one or no thing that can resist the almighty power of God. When God says, let there be light, light appears. When Jesus says to the wind and the waves, be still, it is still. When He says to the leper, be clean, the leprosy is gone. 
Daniel 4.35 says that none can stay the hand of God. The Canaanites were bigger and stronger and they could have fought against Israel all day long, but when God had willed for them to be defeated, they were defeated. Death could not keep Lazarus from rising when the living Lord Jesus Christ spoke for him to rise. An entire legion of demons had absolutely no power to do anything to the Lord Jesus Christ, but at His word went from the man into a herd of pigs. This is the God we are talking about. Almighty. He is the author and source of all power and might. Psalm 62.11 says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard, power belongs to God. All power in this world is God's power. A.W. Pink rightly said that there's not a creature in the entire universe that has an atom of power save what God has delegated. The power that is keeping your heart beating right now The power that is keeping your lungs breathing in and out this very moment is a power that belongs to God and only by His grace is it being given to you this moment and He can withdraw it whenever He pleases. In His might, God created the world. By His power, this world is sustained. By His power, He causes people to be saved by His power. He keeps His people. He preserves them in this world of sin. By His power, He will execute judgment on all humanity. By His power, He will create a new heavens and a new earth. Christian, if God is this powerful and He is your God, what do you have to fear? If this God is for you, who can be against you? Dear friend, if this God is not your God, how can you not quake in your boots this very moment? For when He comes to exercise His judgment in His mighty power, you will be like a tender reed on the shoreline as the tidal wave of His wrath comes against you. And yet, He's done everything needed for you to be saved. In Jesus Christ, He's worked the impossible. You can have God as your God. Forgiveness of sins. Just turn from trusting yourself and turn to Christ. Very briefly, let's close with the second point, which is that God calls His people to trust Him. God calls His people to trust Him. If we truly trust God, we will look at how He has called us to live and we'll seek to follow His ways. Look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Walk before me and be blameless. I'm looking at God is speaking. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham, here's what I require of you. Walk before me. Don't live your life as if I'm not here. Don't live your life as if you are on your own, as if you need to depend on your own strength and your own wisdom 
Rather, acknowledge me. Live before my face. And thus be blameless. For when we live with the understanding, the realization that we are living before the eyes of Almighty God, then surely we will turn to Him, look to Him, trust Him, and follow His ways. Oh, we dare not sin before His watching eyes. We pray to Him, God, show me how to walk rightly. This is the life of faith. In the New Testament, we learn that trusting God means putting away our flesh. Not talking about this, not this kind of flesh. The Bible talking about flesh is talking about that part of us that wants to rebel against God. That part of us that wants to put God's ways away and to go my way and to do what I want to do. That's the flesh. And the Bible says that faith is putting that flesh away. It's cutting off that flesh. It's putting it down and saying, I submit to God because He's wise and He's good and He loves me. Being a Christian, being a child of God is a life of putting away the flesh. And that's one of the reasons that God instituted this thing called circumcision. Circumcision is the physical enactment of what God requires of His people. Physically, it is cutting off of flesh, but at the same time, that God is calling Abraham and his descendants to physically be circumcised, what he's ultimately calling them to do is to circumcise their hearts. They were being called to die to themselves and trust God. If you notice verse 11, verse 11, God says that circumcision is being given as a sign of the covenant. You know about signs of the covenant. Rainbows, right? God makes a covenant with Noah. He makes a promise. Promise, I will never flood the world again. And here's a sign to remind you of what I've promised. A rainbow. So it was with circumcision. It was a sign meant to remind Abraham and his descendants of the promises that God had made that from Abraham would come this great nation, this nation of nations. It pointed to this day, the day we're living in, the day when the Gentiles are flocking in to the kingdom of God, the day of missions, the day of the open door of salvation for all the world. This was the day it was pointing to. But it isn't just a reminder of what God has promised. It's also a reminder of what God requires. Putting off your flesh. Following Him. Later, circumcision would be required by the Old Covenant law, like the sacrifices and the feasts and the the elements of the temple and every other aspect of Israel's life. Circumcision preached Christ. Circumcision pointed to Christ. It pointed towards the promised seed. That's why circumcision is what it is and where it is on the body. It's pointing to the promised seed, Jesus Christ. It preached Christ. It pointed to the one who would come from Abraham's line, who would be the true Savior, the one in whom all the promises would find their fulfillment. 
God had not just promised that Abraham would have many descendants. There was the promise of the one descendant. The one promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. The serpent slayer who was to come. The one who would make all things right. There's a reason that when Matthew starts his genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the first thing he wants to say is, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham. Oh, not just a son, mind you. The one! So if you were a circumcised Old Testament Israelite reading the book of Genesis, what would you have learned was the point of your circumcision? It pointed backwards to the promise made to Abraham. It pointed forward to the coming Messiah. And it pointed inward to the call for you to put away your flesh and believe on God and His strength and not your own. Circumcision was like the law. It never saved a single person. Just as the law has no power to save, but was meant to point people to faith in God and Christ, so circumcision had no power to save, but pointed people to God and to Christ. Well, this morning, this message is calling you to trust God and Christ. So where do you stand? Where do you stand? Are you living by faith in God? Or are you still living by faith in yourself? Is your life one of God-esteem? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or are you still living the life of self-esteem? I can do all things through me. Have you given your life to Christ? Surrendered yourself to Him? Have you been baptized in His name and begun living a life of looking to His Word, casting your cares on Him in prayer, following Him? Abraham, at the end of our passage, takes action. We see that he is now believing what God has said. He circumcises himself. He circumcises 13-year-old Ishmael. He circumcises all the men of his household. He shows he believes God through action. In the same way God calls us when we have come to the point of believing his word to show it by action. The first initial action is being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, dying to who we once were, coming up out of the water to say, I belong to Christ and to Him I will follow. I trust in Him and Him alone. And then it's a whole life after that of showing your faith by action, looking to the Word, trusting Christ. Jesus, show me how to live and then striving to follow Him. Is that the kind of life you are living? Or are you far, far away from the kingdom of God? Where do you stand? Turn from your sins and trust God. Let's pray. This time I'd encourage all of us just to take a few moments to go.